Matthew 1, starting in verse 1, and I'm reading from the ESV. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jehoiakim, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the son of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, to whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, we thank you for this morning that we can gather together and we can see our brothers and sisters and also hear from our brothers and sisters in Japan. Uh, God, this morning as we open your word, uh, we know that there are passages in our Bible that can seem confusing and um, not few more than the genealogies can be confusing. But um, God, I pray that um, you would reveal to us through your word, by your Holy Spirit, um, what it is in this list of names that um, that we should know, that will show us who Jesus is. God, I pray for Pastor Kevin. I pray that you'd be uh, working through his words and all the study that he's done this week uh, to bless us and, and edify your people. Um, God, thank you for this morning, and thank you most of all for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you do need to get a punch on your card, um, next week, Billy Blossom's going to be joining us. He's a church planner that we sent to Morgan to North Carolina. He'll be preaching next Sunday. I'm really excited about that. So make sure you come back. Greetings to the, the balcony buddies up there. Once again, good to see you. Good to see you up there. Need to give you a shout out every once in a while. Um, some of you young ones here can be a bit confused. So here's some help for you. Our rival in sports is not Arkansas, okay? No, it's Kansas. <laughs> Let's be clear. A few weeks back, KU 
which is uncapitalized in my manuscript, of course, was leading Oklahoma in football, and that hapless team somehow found themselves ahead at halftime, and some Tiger fans on a message board that I read were debating, you know, nobody here li likes Oklahoma, should we root for Kansas? Well, the old school folks, of course, they replied back quite sternly, of course not, you never root for KU. And that includes yesterday when they were going up and somehow even beat Texas. Even Texas, right? I'd add, if they're going up against Darth Vader and the Stormtroopers or the Orcs of Mordor, nobody. You never, ever root for Kansas, just to be clear. Well, growing up south of Kansas City, a, ki a kid of a diehard Missouri fan, enduring the KU, I mean KC media market, I grew up believing there was just nothing good in Kansas. You drive over the state line and, and all the uh, lush greens kind of become nasty brown. It was kind of like Narnia, you know, always winter but never Christmas. Anyway, a few years back, we were heading out west on our sabbatical trip, and we ended up cutting through the southern part of the state, and it was then that I first drove through this area called the Flint Hills. And I remember thinking, wow, there's actually some beauty here. But then I think I went back to scrolling through PowerOfTheZoo.com, but I was just caught off guard. I was surprised by the glory. I think that's sometimes how we approach the genealogies of the Bible. Like what we see here in the first few verses of Matthew. You know, these are the ads on Netflix, right, that you press and hold the skip. These are the, the pages at the front of the book that you always just flip right past. Ancestry.com, no thank you. And I've often looked at these, these verses in the same way. They seem confusing and at times, if we're honest, boring. We may get excited at times to open up our Bibles and then we end up starting here and then we think, yeah, I think I'll go yeah, rewatch um, Ted Lasso for the third time. But if we do, we'll almost certainly miss out because there's a surprising amount of glory to be found right here if we'll keep an open mind and we'll truly look. Last week, we kicked off our new series called Our King, His Kingdom, and we're going to spend the next multiple months or years really walking verse by verse through this amazing gospel of Matthew. We're going to hold up these pages like a fine diamond, turning in the light, um, seeing glory from multiple angles. We're going to see the glory of our King, and we're going to pray that God would make us less and less about us and more and more about His kingdom. We start out with the introduction, chapters 1 and 2, and then we're going to go into these five cycles of stories about Jesus and sermons from him, and then we get to the last three chapters, 26 through 28, that have his death and resurrection, but today and in the coming weeks, we're going to be in that prologue, in that intro, where we consider who is Jesus and where is he from. We'll get to the birth of Jesus in just a couple of weeks, but here today we come to this genealogy. And we're going to look at it from two angles, the people of the genealogy and the purpose of the genealogy. Let's first get to the, the people of the genealogy. Now, you see some big dogs, for sure, you could say in verse 1, right off the bat, and we'll get to those. But first, you can't miss, I don't want you to miss, three groups of overlapping people in this genealogy, and these are the ancestors of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, notice that women are included here. Now, people rush today to argue, they try to argue that the Bible represses women. 
Now, sure, there are teachings that may challenge how we think, but the reality is that the Bible is a document that was way ahead of its time. The fact that women are included in this genealogy and normal women and not the matriarchs is truly remarkable. We see Tamar in verse 3, Rahab and Ruth in verse 5, the woman known as the wife of Uriah in verse 6, and of course Mary mentioned in verse 16, the mother of Jesus. We might think today, of course women are included. Why wouldn't they be? But this was pretty progressive for that day. The kingdom of Christ came and shook the status quo. It gave a picture of what the king's ministry would look like. Matthew and Jesus communicate clearly women are worthy to be a key part of the kingdom, even to be listed as ancestors of the king. They were a part of Christ's group of followers. They were among the first witnesses of the resurrection. They were some of Christ's closest relationships. They were some of his best laborers. As Rebecca McLaughlin puts it, Jesus' valuing of women is unmistakable. In a culture in which women were devalued and often exploited, it underscores their equal status before God and his desire for a personal relationship with them. Now, the kingdom of God hasn't fully come, right? Most of us would acknowledge that we still have a long way to go, but here's the question. We who follow Jesus, are we like our Lord leading the way of honoring and empowering our women? We should be. Second, notice that outsiders are welcome. There's no doubt an anti-outsider sentiment in our culture today, and there certainly was in old school Israel. But these women listed in this genealogy are also Gentiles, or non-Jews. They are included here, though, in the lineage of Christ the King. Rahab is a Canaanite who helps Israel defeat Jericho, while Ruth is a Moabite who latches herself to Naomi and the people of God. Bathsheba, we didn't see that name in there, but she's also counted as a Gentile, and we see that in verse 6 that calls her the wife of Uriah having married a Hittite. And there's also this Jewish tradition that Tamar was a Syrian, a Canaanite, who also came to worship the one true God. Now listed second here in verse 1 is Abraham. Yeah, he's the father of Israel, of course, but he's also the one to whom the Lord said in Genesis 12, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The hope of God's reign would extend outward to outsiders, even to the very ends of the earth, to places like Japan, like we're praying and talking about today, but also to where we stand and live right here, right now, because we're Gentiles too, at least most of us, enfolded into this promise of God. But it's more than that. The true Israel, the Son of God himself, had Gentile in his blood, and then he poured that out for the nations. Here at the start, we see the gospel writer show how the good news of Jesus is meant for all. And the book, of course, culminates in what we call the Great Commission, where our Lord tells us to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. There's this thought that's out there. That Christianity is a Western thing and works against diversity. But as McLaughlin puts it, contrary to popular conceptions, the Christian movement was multicultural and multi-ethnic from the outset. We may not want to accept that, but it's true. She goes on and says this, but ironically, 
Our habit of equating Christianity with Western culture is itself an act of Western bias. The last book of the Bible paints a picture of the end times when a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, will worship Jesus. This was the multicultural vision of Christianity from the beginning. For all the wrong turns made by Western Christians in the last 2,000 years, when we look at church growth globally today, it is not crazy to think that this vision could ultimately be realized. So, if you care about diversity, don't dismiss Christianity. It is the most diverse, multi-ethnic, and multicultural movement in all of history. Here's something we have to wrestle with, especially in today's world. If our Lord is all about incorporating all nations into his saving plan, but even in the making of his Messiah, are we with him? Are we on his team? We sure should be. Third, notice that sinners are acknowledged. I think if you ask most people today, they say that the people close to God are the really holy people, or at least the people that act like they are or think that they are. But if you look at Jesus, who was he most often hanging out with? The tax collectors and sinners, right? The people shunned by the religious leaders of that day. Those who saw their need and saw that need met in Christ. Some of those same people, really people like us, are found in this list of names. First, those Gentile women that we've already talked about. Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute and sleeps with her father-in-law. Rahab, though she helps out the armies of Israel, is a prostitute by trade. Bathsheba, again, Uriah's wife, sleeps with David the king as he offs her husband. These women had sexual histories. They had sinful past. You and I can read the Gospels and see the people that Jesus redeems. But we can also see them here in Christ's line. You and I may have a past, but we can also have a future. But if you know these stories, you might say, wait, wait a minute, Kevin here. Tamar ended up in that place due to abuse from men. Like almost all who sell their bodies, Rahab was doubtfully there completely by choice. And then there's the Sheba. What happened to her was almost certainly not her decision, given the power dynamics at play, because David was the king. We're not just sinners. We're sufferers. All of us. We've sinned against others. We've been sinned against ourselves. But we have the hope that Christ redeems our past as well as our pain. And that leads to another group of sinners that we see here. Some really bad kings, right? The, the nation was messed up. The leaders were messed up. And of course, it starts with King David again. He's at one point, he's called a man after God's heart. But at another point, he's a jerk after another man's wife. In the rest of these names, we see some good kings, but then we also see some that were bad in so many ways, like Solomon. Yeah, like David, it was complicated, but a sinner. Rehoboam and Abijah and Joram and Uzziah and Ahaz and Manasseh, bad guys, bad dudes. And of course, Jeconiah, who he was cuffed and dragged to Babylon when God had just said enough is enough, and he made it very clear what he thought of his people and her leaders. Now, you had some better kings in there for sure, but even they, like us, were still sinners. It was a matter of degree, not kind, 
And as we read that, that should give us hope. Jesus is for people like us. While he is sinless, he came through this line of sinners. People like you and me. Do you see that in ourselves? And do you bow humbly before him? Do we bring him our problems as well as our pain? And do we open up our arms and welcome sinners and sufferers into our lives, into his life? Or are we more like the Pharisees that Jesus is going to write up in a few pages, wagging our fingers, shaking our heads? Which are we? The family and I are heading back to one of my favorite places over the holidays. We're going to go to the Big Apple. And you can stand in Battery Park there in southern Manhattan, and you can look out over the bay, and there you see the Statue of Liberty, Ellis Island in the background. There on that island, you can visit the, the National Museum of Immigration, and you can learn about those who came before us, about many of our ancestors that, that helped shape America into what she's come to be. And there in the foreground, of course, is Lady Liberty holding up her torch, extending her welcome. Here in the gospel, we will see Jesus opening up his arms to sinners and sufferers, then and now and into our future. And these opening verses, of course, list names of the same, laying out clearly our past, his past. We learn a lot of the people of this genealogy. They, they read like this big sign that reads, everyone is welcome. And that should fill our hearts with gladness and hope. It should leave us living lives that are hospitable and kind. Let's turn second to the purpose of Christ's genealogy. Now, if I come home from the film, we'll say the, the latest Marvel movie, movie, and you ask me about it, it's doubtful that I'm just going to rattle off a list of names. If I do, you're probably going to call me on that and just say, come on, what's it about? Those names, they mean nothing. In the same way, these names, um, in this list of Jesus' ancestors, they make a point. There's a purpose to them. Once again, this is obviously the introduction to the story. These are the opening credits. But there are some spoilers in them too, right? Here at the very beginning, even in the very opening verse, we learn what this book, what this story is all about. We just looked at the people of the genealogy. We saw that women are included. We saw that outsiders are welcomed. We saw that sinners are acknowledged. But here I want you to also see three things that point to the purpose of his genealogy. First, see the beauty of God's plan. The beauty of God's plan. A word that we're not afraid of here in Karas that we embrace, cherish, is this word providence. There's that street over there, right? But what does it mean? Yeah, it has this idea of God providing for his creation, for all he's made, especially his people. But when we, we really get down to explaining what providence means, we usually mention two different angles. On one hand, God's sustaining his creation, holding it together, keeping it going. And secondly, God ruling over his creation, guiding it and directing it to fulfill all his purposes. Ephesians 1.11 puts it well. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Our Lord, of course, is all about restoring everything he's made, about bringing salvation to his fallen creation. 
And in his plan, of course, that involves sending his son, a savior, into the world to die for sin, to be raised for life. In this genealogy, we see God working over thousands of years, providentially, to see all things summed up in Christ. Think about what's going on here. Their God's people are in this land, but they're under a Roman occupation. Life is difficult. Hope is hard to come by. And they've not heard from the Lord for hundreds of years. There's this thick darkness that hangs over that land. And then that star shines over Bethlehem that night. Christ has descended to earth. And with that hope, this list of names reminds us that God's plan did come about. His providence has been seen even through evil people. Not just evil people, right? Normal people. Not even all the kings are listed here. Most of the citizens of those nations aren't. They're not supposed to be. Matthew here is making a point. Millions of people lived and died. They lived normal lives. They lived fallen lives. And God was all the time quietly, faithfully working in his way, in his timing. He would not abandon his creation. Like back in the garden. When God came to Adam and Eve saying, where are you after they'd sinned? He's doing the same thing here. His son comes on the scene, calling out, drawing near, coming to us in love. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 puts it this way. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Here we see the beauty of God's plan. He rules over his world. He keeps his promises. Here in Chorus, we like to hold on to and talk about three main truths. God is in control. But not just that, God is good. But going still further, God is not just good and in control, but he is with us. And we're reminded of that as we see this genealogy. In this genealogy, on this side of Christ's birth, as well as his death, we know no matter how things may seem, his plan, his beautiful plan, is still being worked out. Back then, of course, it was his plan to get them to the first advent, but right now it's to get us to the second. Do you believe that? For you and me, even in hard days like today. I said God keeps his promises. One of the most relevant ones here is the one that he made and kept to David the king back in 2 Samuel 7. So this is just a really pivotal chapter of the Bible where David is talking to the Lord and he says, God, I've got a house here. It's a pretty good house. I feel the need that I need to make you one, you know, a better one, of course. And he's talking there about the temple. But the Lord responds, and he responds in this surprising way. He says, you want to build me a house? Well, guess what? I'm going to build you a house. And God says these words to David. 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He should build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love 
will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And there, of course, God is talking about Jesus. God keeps that promise. The most important one of all, and that leads to my next point. Second, we see the salvation of God's king. So if we go back to verse 1 again of Matthew 1, it reads, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of God, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We've already talked about Abraham. But David here stands out in this verse. And we see this theme throughout Matthew that Jesus is the son of David. We're going to see that title used again and again. And with it, each time we get this reminder of Christ's identity. He's the heir to that throne. The one promised so long ago that would reign and reign forever. It's the theme of this passage starting out in the first verse. And then, as, as we read, serving as the hinges on which the verses turn. David is emphasized here. Jesus is the heir to his throne, the fulfillment of God's purposes. As Isaiah put it once, a passage we hear every Christmas season. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus is the Christ. Okay, this isn't his last name. Right? It's a name that means anointed one. Just as David was anointed as king to lead the people of God, so Jesus is anointed with the Spirit of God. He is the Messiah, the long-awaited king who would come and usher in his kingdom and bring salvation. Now, we also tend to just jump over the word Jesus. But that name, even though it was fairly common in that day, and it was really more like Yeshua, it's a variation of the name Joshua, right, from the Old Testament. His name means God saves. So this child born in that manger, who would hang on that cross, who will come again in glory, he is the Christ, he is the Savior, he is a man. The genealogy, of course, labors to make that point, but he's also God. Notice the wording of verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And we can read between the lines there, and we can get to what I think is a clear point. Mary is spoken of in the passive here. You see that? And having a baby is a, a pretty active endeavor, normally. But he has another father, the Lord of the universe. Right, and as, as both God of heaven and man of earth, he alone can provide salvation, bringing heaven and earth together once again. Now you might say, people are left out of this genealogy. You'd be right. But this was common in that day to help with memorization, to help with style, and then ultimately to make a point. One thing that's interesting is the, the repetition of the word 14 in verse 17 and why Matthew chooses this is actually quite significant. 
Hebrew characters apparently had um, numeric values given to them. The word David just has three letters. There's, there's markings that kind of tell us how to pronounce them, what the, the vowel markings. The three letters, D, V, and D. Of course, those aren't the Hebrew names of them, but D, V, D. The Hebrew letter is worth four. The letter V counts for six. So, D plus V plus D equals 14. So, that's David's jersey number, 14. It seems like Matthew here, as a, as a Jew, writing to Jews, is screaming out again and again, Hey, this is David. He's the king. 1-4. The one you've been waiting for. This is the one, the son of David. Do you and I see this? That he is our hope for saving us. But also for restoring the world. Again, as we said last week, we'll say throughout this series, no earthly king or kingdom will give us what we want. Only Jesus and his kingdom of heaven. Third, see the center of God's story. Now, there's something really significant about starting with this list of names, and it's really easy to just jump past. But Matthew's trying to tell us that this is true history, real history. Scholar Patrick Schreiner points out how important genealogies are in the Old Testament. Genesis, at the start of the Bible, has ten of them. Chronicles, which in the Hebrew Bible is at the end, they have, it has nine of them. The Lord here and there is telling us this. This is a make-believe. These aren't myths. These are real people, real kings living over real kingdoms. Kings who had kids who had kids who eventually, in God's plan, gave birth to Jesus the King. Matthew, we're going to see, describes the climax of the story of God. But these first verses detail everything that's come before the backstory, and it's all true. Well, the story also, again, has a center, has a focus. Schreiner also points out how the 16 words in verse 1... They summarize the entire story of the Bible so far. So in that one verse, Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But then the scholar, he points out how those words, the book of the genealogy, could also just as easily be translated the book of the Genesis. And those same words are used back in Genesis 2 and Genesis 5, where God describes the beginning of the heaven and the earth and the formation of his people. Verse 1 reminds us also of the very beginning, Adam, Abraham, David. It encompasses all of human history, but it also encompasses God's main point. It's all about Jesus. Now, I spent a, a decent amount of time talking about the people of this genealogy, but it's not primarily about the people, right? It's first and foremost about God. The point of history, the focus of all time is Jesus. And this passage reminds us of that. And it shows us our place in the picture as well. Patrick Schreiner again puts it this way. And let me say, I don't know what this means when I start quoting people that used to be in my youth group. But, you know. Matthew's genealogy has a past, a present, and future. In Jesus Christ, we're now brought into his family. Abraham and David became our fathers. It becomes our genealogy, our family tree, through this world, seeks 
historical, sorry, though this world seeks historical rooting and future life in various ways, only one child establishes the new creation. Jesus is the point of this genealogy, for Jesus is the point of the Bible. Just as an aside, that kind of fits with what I've been saying. Patrick used to be in my youth group, and his, his parents are just people that many of you know, but he was the kid in the youth group that this may be nothing to you, but, but um, he was the guy that was there just so he wouldn't get fined, right? And um, it's just amazing to see how God is um, using him and his ministry. It just gives hope, like, as we, as we seek to parent faithfully. But anyway, there was so much unrest um, then, and there's so much unrest in our day. Uh, people hurting, going through a massive struggle today are changing jobs, homes, churches, friends. They're numbing themselves with alcohol and entertainment, with sex and food, wanting any kind of hope. But it's found only in Jesus the King and in the kingdom he brings. Do you see that, friends? And are you sharing that with your friends? It's all about him. I mentioned with that first point, the sign that says everyone is welcome. For the second, think about another. I think of another great city that I've had the, the privilege of visiting where, where Jesus is very much at work today through some of our friends as well, Rio de Janeiro, right? And, and standing over that city, you have the great Christ the Redeemer statue that's standing over there, arms open, welcoming people in, and of course reminding them that he alone saved. Remember that sign that was on the cross that the Jewish leaders resisted, that we resist also in our sin? Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And he alone can redeem. But resist as we may, it's what we also deeply want. We want his kingdom of peace. The people and purpose of Matthew's genealogy reveal to us that Jesus is the long-awaited son of David. Embrace him because he's what you and I so desperately want. You may have heard the name Susan Boyle. Susan Boyle, in April of 2009, she sheepishly, awkwardly introduced herself to a TV show audience. She was 47 years old. She was unemployed and unmarried. She'd spent much of her life in solitude, just her and her cat. A Canadian newspaper explained the scene this way. They saw a thick-waisted, middle-aged woman with afraid of Kahlo eyebrows and Brillo pad hair, and the members of the audience could be seen rolling their eyes and smirking. They could not conceive that so plain and post-dated a package could contain so lovely a voice. And many of you have seen this. She opens her mouth, she begins to sing, and Simon Cowell and the other judges, all of the audience of Britain's Got Talent, they begin to freak out. And now she's sung before the Queen and the Pope. Many of you have seen her on YouTube. There's a musical that chronicles her life. That audience, in person and on TV, was surprised by beauty. And let's not forget that beauty comes in surprising places, and sometimes even when we're reading the Bible and we get to a long list of names of people we haven't heard of. Going back to where I began. Sometimes when we open our Bibles, things can seem stale. It can strike us as boring. Then we start to get confused, and we too often don't push through. What do we do about that? The first thing, just push through. No digging, no diamonds. 
Too much of the time we don't keep at it, and it's like we're on a hike, we're looking for a, a view, and we turn back just one bend too early. Stick with it. The second thing is to see the big picture. Your, your food last night might not have been exciting, but hopefully it was at least semi-healthy, nourished your body in some way. I don't want you to think this is just like eating your vegetables, but it's not completely unlike that either. But God grows us. He feeds us through his work. The third thing is to ask for God's grace. In Psalm 119.18, David prays, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your law. Plead with God. Keep reading. And sometimes what most often tastes like vegetables will hit you like a great steak or a fine slice of cheesecake. The fourth thing is to be on the lookout for Christ. Remember, he's the point of everything. Search for him and expect good things to happen. Expect to see some glory, the glory of Jesus, even on a page like this. Michael Reeves puts it this way so well. He writes, we can open our Bible for all sorts of odd reasons. As a religious duty, an attempt to earn God's favor, or thinking that it serves as a moral self-help guide, a manual of handy tips for effective religious lives, that idea is actually one main reason so many feel discouraged in their Bible reading. Hoping to find quick lessons for how they should spend a day, people find instead a genealogy or a list of various sacrifices, and how can page after page of histories, descriptions of the temple, instructions to priests affect how I rest, work, and pray today. But when you see that Christ is the subject of all the scriptures, that he is the word, the Lord, the son who reveals his father, the promised hope, the true temple, the true sacrifice, the great high priest, the ultimate king, then you can read, not so much asking, what does this mean for me right now, but what do I learn here of Christ? Knowing that the Bible is about him and not me means that Instead of reading the Bible obsessing about me, I can gaze on him. And as through the pages, you get caught up in the wonder of his story, you find your heart strangely pounding for him in a way you would never have if you had treated the Bible as a book about you. These few verses, this Gospel of Matthew, the grand sweep of human history, as well as these brief, humble lives of yours and mine, they're all meant to be about one thing, one man, Jesus the King. He is the great diamond, the beautiful one, and only in realizing that will our lives reflect his glory and with it experience the beauty we were intended for. He invites us to come to him. Thank you, Lord, um, for allowing us to see, giving us eyes to see Jesus. We want to see more of him. We want to see his glory. Um, forgive us for inner sin, just focusing on ourselves, looking in the mirror too much instead of uh, looking out the window and seeing glory. Um, change our hearts. Renew us. Give us a zeal. Give us a passion for who Christ is, a passion for the gospel, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.